we can do better than build back the pre-pandemic world. We can build forward to a world that is more resilient, sustainable and inclusive. We must seize this new Bretton Woods moment. Building back better means giving support to the most vulnerable while maintaining our momentum on reaching the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the SDGs. Canada is here to listen and to help. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and I will be your host as we dig into the topic of investing. This is an episode that I've been threatening for quite a while and I've been looking forward to talking about these different topics. It's kind of how I started my journey into a lot of the different areas that this podcast covers. And so it is something that I definitely have some personal affinity towards. I also want to give a reminder just in general that this recent series of episodes is kind of an interlude in between season two and season three. The seasons are generally fairly structured. And so these are kind of random one-off episodes about topics that are related to a lot of the stuff that I cover, but are they don't necessarily fit into the seasons as well as they have a lot more of just my personal opinions and feelings and my thoughts on things versus presenting content for content's sake, where usually I am just presenting information and ideas and perspectives and things like this, but I'm not necessarily inserting my own views quite as much, whereas these episodes are pretty much just my own views on things. So uh, just wanted to give a little disclaimer there for those of you that are not really in tune with what's going on as far as where we are in the podcast. But that is what's going on. And we've got this episode. We've got another one on homesteading. And there may be one or two others or that might end it. And then we can get into season three and get back to a more structured format. Now, as far as this episode is concerned on investing, the topics that I wanted to highlight are the stock market, uh, metals, and more specifically, probably gold, uh, cryptocurrencies, real estate and physical assets, entrepreneurship, as well as some personal investment options for all of us. But before I get into those specifics, I want to give more of a macro view of how I see things right now. And this does relate more to the stock market, I guess. But I do see us kind of at the tail end of a bubble. We are at all-time highs, record highs. There have been record gains. Valuations are at extremely high levels. And this has been the case for over a year, probably two years or more, that we have been due for a recession or a depression, some sort of pullback. And we got a bit of one as they were starting to raise interest rates. I think that was about two years ago. Uh, they were able to raise interest rates a few times, and then markets basically started to crash. And that was, I think, roughly two years ago. And then they quickly uh, turned around on their stance on raising interest rates. They said they'd stay steady, and then they changed their minds and decided to start dropping interest rates. All this was before coronavirus. And then, of course, coronavirus uh, comes along, and we had one 
a decent sized market crash that really only lasted for a few weeks. And basically, the government stepped in again and said, here, we're going to throw a bunch of money at this. And they did. And stock markets came right back up. And so even though we have economies worldwide that are in worse shape than they have been in modern history, we have one of the biggest impacts on the global economy going on right now as I speak, We have the issues with the repo market that came up about a year ago. We've had, um, if you're into Austrian economics, we have had a lot of really cheap money through artificially low interest rates, which is basically the exact scenario that sets up the bubble. And we are at that point where it should pop. So from a lot of different perspectives, we should be in the middle of or at the beginning of a recession or a depression. Now, for some reason, we are still at all-time highs. And a lot of that reason is because governments are stepping in and dumping a lot of money, and that is propping up markets through various means. It's not necessarily that governments are going straight to the stock market and pushing up stock market prices, but um, for reasons that I'm not going to dig into the depths of in this episode, um, there are relevant connections between governments giving stimulus and printing off money and throwing out money in different forms, lowering asset requirements, and so on that do have a big impact. Now, the lowering of asset requirements is something that I guess I should make a note of because I've talked about this in a previous episode about how banks are required to keep a certain amount of money in reserves to back up the money that they are loaning out. And at least in the States, as of when I did the research for that episode a year ago or so, that amount was roughly 10%. But then it also depended on the type of account. So there are certain types of accounts that there were no reserve requirements for and others where there was this 10% reserve requirement. So even though the bank could issue out $100,000, they only needed to have $10,000 of actual money. And so there's plenty of issues with it that that I went over. But since the coronavirus hit, one of the things that has been done is those reserve requirements, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, have either been eased or been totally eliminated. And so that also adds to um, the issues. It, it, it adds to the stimulus on one hand, and it adds to setting up the Uh, imploding of the bubble on the other hand. And so you have some issues there. But there are also some more passive things at play right now, other than the direct stimulus from governments and direct policy and that kind of stuff. You do have the precedent for bailouts and stimulus as well. So although stimulus is a direct action, there is also the realization that markets and individuals and businesses and basically everybody has now that the government will step in with stimulus. And if it gets bad enough, they will step in and bail out industries or even particular companies. That is something that we have had precedent set for. And that is something that people expect. They expect that if it gets really bad, the government's going to step in and do something about it, whether it be through stimulus or through bailouts or through whatever. So that is something that's also propping things up because people figure, well, even if things go south, they're only going to go so far before the government steps in, fixes everything, then we'll be back to all-time highs in you know, a few months and it'll be all over. And that's not necessarily true, but that's the way a lot of people view things. 
And with that, you have the whole buy and hold strategy that investors have been indoctrinated into. And that is causing its own issues. On one hand, it does prop things up because anytime the market dips, people see it as a buying opportunity and they jump in and buy because, you know, the whole idea you buy low and you sell high. And uh, there is this whole strategy, the Warren Buffett strategy, the buy and hold strategy, where you buy up a lot of good value investments or high growth companies. You ideally buy them on a dip and then you just hold it. And if there is a crash, you know, eventually it'll come back up and you'll be back to making gains again and holding it for the long term. Historically, you are always going to make gains on that eventually and do well in the long run. The problem with that is that if you were in the markets, say you were fully in the markets just before the 08 crash, then it probably took you a good seven years or so to actually recoup your losses on that investment and just break even. So for example, if you look at the chart for the S&P 500, if you go back to the highs of 2007, it did not hit those highs again that were probably mid to late 2007 till mid to late 2013. And so that's quite a long time to wait if you had all your money in the stock market. Now, if you did wait, it is true that you would have gained back that value and then started making more gains on your money after that. But my point is that you might not want to be in when you're at all-time record highs with an overdue crash coming and wait out those seven years of just getting back to where you were to begin with. And then you include on top of that the inflation that you have been suffering over those seven years, and it might take even longer. But that's a bit of an issue. Now, yes, ideally, you would still be putting money into the market after, let's say, the 07 uh, highs and it's starting to come down. So if you're putting in money at the lows, then probably if you're sticking with the buy and hold strategy, it's not like you just had 100 grand to dump in at all-time lows. No, you are just adding to it slowly over time. Each month or so, you'll put some in your account. And so, yes, that would mitigate the issue. You might get back to breaking even maybe in five years, maybe even a little less, but that is not necessarily a good investment if you look at exactly how that plays out. Whereas if you would have lowered your exposure to the markets as you were hitting all-time highs and as the markets were going up, 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 and up, then when things crashed, you could take that money that wasn't in the markets and you could start putting it back into the market when things actually did crash and you would be doing much, much, much better, you might miss out on the tail end of that bubble while you wait for it to actually crash. But that reserves the majority of your value. You, you can leave stuff in there and most likely most people would, but you would reserve the value of whatever it is you withdrew from the markets at those all-time highs or close to them. And then when you hit the actual all-time highs and things crash, you put that value back in at the lows or near the lows. And that way, you basically save your investment from diminishing in value so much through the crash. You basically cut your exposure by however much you have taken out. And then you can also increase your exposure to the gains and make money even more rapidly because you're inserting that value back in after things crash. And so that would probably be a much more 
effective strategy in most cases. Now, again, if people have this mentality, though, that markets will always recover, if you hold for the long term, you'll get rich and you know the money will just keep on growing exponentially. And eventually, you know, you'll have all this money and everything will be great. You know, that sounds really nice. That's just not guaranteed. We don't know the future. And so that's also the hole in the strategy that I just outlined is that you don't know the future. It could be like the tech bubble, where even once it was very obvious that there was a giant bubble in tech, it took another roughly year and about doubling in value before things actually crashed, fell about 80% or more. And plenty of companies just flat out went out of business. And so it was a huge crash. Now, if you would have gotten out, let's say a year before the all-time highs in some of the big tech names, then you might have had some exposure. And the exposure that you did have, let's say half of your investing value was into um, the markets at that point in time, then that half of your value would have doubled. And so, great, you got some good games. You missed out on the other half of your value doubling. So, you know, that's a bit of a bummer. But then when things actually do crash and you have the popping of the bubble, even though you missed out on 100% gains in your money, you also missed out on the 80% loss of value, which is a much greater thing to overcome and to make up for. And so in the end, you'd be a lot better off. Once things crashed and the tech bubble burst, then if you would have put that, let's say, 50% of your investing value back into the markets, then you could have gotten in at the bottom on some of these big tech names that actually survived, and you would be doing very well within a matter of just a few years, and you would have missed out on a lot of those losses from the crash. And so that is something to be aware of, that there are some fallacies involved with the whole buy and hold strategy, as well as just the passive flows in general that do affect the market. You've got things like pensions and 401ks, uh, institutional investments, different vehicles like this that are essentially buying the market just nonstop. They're always going to be buying the market. It's the whole buy and hold strategy, like I mentioned, but it's also just the way a lot of people's retirements are set up and the way that many pensions are set up. And so you have a lot of money that is entering the market and will continue to enter the market. And it doesn't really matter what the market is going to do or how precarious the situation is. So on one hand, that continues to, again, back up the market, prop up the markets, keep them steady, keep them rising, because so many people are counting on it, because all this passive money is flowing into it, because people have this mentality of buy and hold. They know there's this backstop of the government that's going to step in if things get uh, a little too crazy and things start to crash. So you have all of this propping up the markets. And those among the direct reasons I mentioned before, such as the injection of uh, money directly into markets, as well as through many different vehicles, different policies, stimulus, all these things that are being directly done. These things tie together to take us to where we are today. All-time highs while the global economy is basically at all-time lows. Yeah, it's totally irrational, but that is the situation we are in. And these are the reasons why. You also have the issue where the US stock market makes up the majority of global investments and all that is done in the dollar. And you have the dollar as the global reserve currency. And so you have some other 
props there, as well as just not having a lot of alternatives. Basically, you need to have exposure to the US markets if you want to make money globally. And if you want a decent reputation as an institution, that's kind of just a must. You have to own US stocks. And one of the reasons is because they have done so well. If you weren't in the FANG stocks over the past, let's say, five years, then you have a pretty big black eye on your record. And your investors and customers are probably not going to appreciate that very much. And so it basically forces more and more people and more and more money to get into it. And the mentalities involved and the direct influence involved really pushes things up and up and up. But while that takes us to all-time highs, and that is a true statement, it also is a huge red flag and a huge sign that we are near the end of this bubble and it will pop. And there is nothing we can do about that. You could have the government step in even harder, print off more money, and then you have inflation issues. And what happens if inflation takes off? Well, generally, you raise interest rates. Well, then no one can pay on their debts and there's a huge sell-off in the market and you have a bunch of issues there. So you really can't do anything about it. Uh, basically, a lot of the different measures, the stopgap measures that are available to governments and institutions, they are not going to hold if there is an actual crash from here. And add into that all the things I've talked about in recent episodes about you know basically the whole strategy of the Great Reset. You've got people like the World Economic Forum, the IMF, and the World Bank have been talking about this being a new Bretton Woods moment. And so if you go back to Bretton Woods, uh, that basically set up the entire monetary system that we are still under to this day after the time of crisis of the World War. And that was a pretty big deal. And out of that came a lot of these global organizations such as the IMF and the World Bank and things like this, as well as the official global reserve currency status of the dollar and many other things. It was a really big deal. And they are calling for a new Bretton Woods movement now in conjunction with all the talk of the Great Reset and building back better and changing the way our economic system works and our monetary system works. This is a big deal and that will come at the cost of the old system coming down. That's kind of the way these things work. And so all of this is in conjunction with the idea of a market downturn coming in the relatively near future. Now, all of that is the setup for my personal investment strategy currently in the current markets. Basically, we have all of these issues that are creating disruptions and distortions in the markets. We have a lot of increased risk for all of these various reasons. There are huge headwinds of challenge that are ahead of us. And so because of all of this, personally, I don't see there being a good, compelling reason for me to be involved heavily in the markets right now as far as traditional stocks are concerned. That is my personal opinion. Now, I took that opinion about a year ago. So if you are a patron and you have been following, I've got a post there on investing. I actually haven't even updated it in about a year. But I think when I did update, it was around this time where I ended up over the course of six months to a year selling off uh, the majority of my equities that I have in various investment accounts and got into gold and gold stocks and crypto and some other investments like this. 
And with that, I do admit that I have missed out on a lot of gains. If you go back, I'm not sure if I kept the record or if I altered it. I at least have some of the names listed on that post. If you're a patron, you can go look at that. But some of the names I was invested in, like uh, Teladoc, which was a telehealth company, is a telehealth company, uh, Shopify, uh, the, even the big ones like Amazon and Facebook. You've got companies like Tesla and NVIDIA. All of these were companies that I was heavily invested into. I had brought my portfolio down to having just a handful of companies that I really believed in. Shopify was my biggest holding by far. And a lot of those companies have doubled and tripled in value since I sold off. And when I sold off, I had doubled and tripled my value in those investments and done very well over the course of just a few years. And so I took my gains... I got out and went into these alternatives. And because of that, I missed out on this recent run-up. And again, look at the chart for Tesla, NVIDIA, Shopify, uh, all of these different companies. Um, they are a little insane. Basically, the graph just goes straight up. And you know, it's hard to sit around and miss out on those gains. At the same time, gold, my investments in gold, have gone up roughly 60% or so in the past year. And 60% gains in a matter of a year is actually extremely good by itself. So yes, I missed out on a few hundred percent gains in stocks, but I still did very well in my investments, not to include cryptocurrencies, which have tripled and quadrupled in value over the past few years. And so that was really nice. I kind of took a similar strategy where after you had all-time highs in crypto, you had a big crash. And then near the bottom, I bought in at two different bottoms. And in doing so, I was able to make a very good gains in those investments as well. So that's been my personal strategy. Now, if you want to play the game, you want to get into markets, you want to be in the markets, you are in the markets, you want to know, hey, what are some companies that you like? Well, I will say that my personal strategy has been, in general at least, to find companies that are support companies for innovative growth industries. Now, this would be something like AI or drones or autonomous driving or big data or any number of things like this. Basically, I would pick out industries that I thought would do well and are going to have a very prominent role in the next, let's say, decade or so, but currently are fairly small and growing. So I'd find those sectors. I'd find the best companies that are kind of supports, uh, such as Cognex is a company that makes sensors that are used for computer vision and things like this. You've got Ambarella that makes sensors, uh, oftentimes for drones. And you've got lots of other companies such as this that were they're basically the support companies for the industry as a whole. They're making the pieces that make that industry work. Now, out of all those, I would look at the ones that have little to no debt, ideally no debt, that have uh, positive margins, decent margins in their profits. And I would look at their PE ratios. Usually their valuations are fairly high in these situations. But if you look at their forward PE, basically what they're expected to be in the next year, then that can give a really good view for, hey, if they meet their estimates or at least come close and their PE next year is expected to only be 10, which is extremely low, and right now it's 200, then that's a pretty big deal. If they also have no debt, they're also in a good industry and a good support company that would be very vital if the industry takes off. And especially if there's a large stake by the founders and the owners, then you know they're personally vested as well. And then look and see how they are investing 
their money and their profits, if they're investing this into R&D and future infrastructure and for growth, then this is a very good signal. Then with that, you can look at the chart and see if they do have some sort of momentum trend long term. If in general, they're trending up, then this can be a very good company to look into. For some specific names that I really like, I mentioned Shopify. That's one of my favorites. Cognex is another one I really like. Intuitive Surgical, NVIDIA, Amberella. You've got what used to be Taser. I believe now it's Axion. That's another one that I really liked that also has done very well ever since um, I got out of the markets. But uh, those are companies that I do like. Uh, also, if you're into ETFs, I really like the ARK ETFs. That's ARK. Uh, my favorites are ARKK and ARKQ. Those, I believe, one is um, into innovative companies and the other is into automation or robotics or something like that. I can't really remember. I'm doing all this off the top of my head. But personally, those are things that I, I like and that I was heavily invested in and that if I were to put money in the markets now, those would be companies and the types of companies that I would consider investing in. The next category that I was going to bring up is metals and specifically gold. I say that because I like gold the most personally. That's where I see a good investment and good long-term value. Gold has been a store of value for a very long time, and it definitely has been time-tested and has many reasons for why it holds its value so well and why it has held that position over time that I guess you can go back to one of the first episodes I ever did was on money and I talk about some of that stuff. But with that, the one thing to keep in mind is that gold can be a pretty big competitor to fiat money. So as governments are printing off and creating more and more money out of nowhere, that is in contrast to gold, which the supply is not increasing at a very rapid rate. And so with that, the value of gold typically stays in one place, whereas the value of the fiat currencies falls and falls and falls. You have just the standard 2% inflation, and you have everything on top of that as governments are printing off more and more and more money. And so the price that's good for the price of gold, the price of gold typically goes up. But because of that competition and because of that contrast that is created, there's a lot of incentive for keeping the price of gold down so that it doesn't look as bad and it doesn't act as much as a competitor and doesn't draw money out of the markets and out of the fiat money system. And so with that, you've got things like recently JP Morgan was officially found guilty of manipulating gold prices in the markets. And you have plenty of other examples like that where large institutions and governments have been caught manipulating the prices of gold. And that's not much of an issue. You've even got government interference, such as in America a few decades ago, when they confiscated all gold, and it was mandatory to turn in your gold. And so you've got a lot of interference that has come into play historically. And that is a risk to consider. And that is an aspect. Another thing to consider is what type of investment is it? So let's use the gold example, which is what I'm sticking with here. You've got roughly three ways of owning gold or having exposure to gold. You can have possession of gold and actually have the asset in your house, in a vault, or let's say in a safety deposit box in the bank, but something where it's an actual physical bit of gold, coins, bars, whatever it is. You can have possession of that. 
Another way of getting exposure is to have some sort of asset-backed vehicle. And so you could have an investment where you are invested in a company and you have stock in a company that's maybe a gold mining company. And so you actually have an asset, you have that stock, and that stock represents ownership of that company. And that actually is something. There is something there. Or maybe you have a self-directed IRA and a custodian is holding your gold for you. So you have some custodial institution that has your gold stored in a safe. So even though you don't physically have that gold through that intermediary, there is an asset there. So it's uh, basically one step removed from you. But there are many different degrees of this from the more abstract to the less abstract here. But overall, just something where there actually is an asset there. And then the final way is magic. You can just magically gain exposure to gold. And this is usually done through something like an ETF that tracks the price of gold. And so it's not necessarily that this ETF has a bunch of gold and reserves backing up what you are buying, nor is it a share in a specific company, but through various more magical financial instruments, it is able to track the price of gold without actually being gold itself or being a gold company itself. And so these are the various ways that you can gain exposure to gold. And again, it ranges from actually physically having it to having an asset you can have in a retirement investment account or something of that nature. Now, when it gets into stuff that I personally am interested in, I do like a gold ETF that tracks the price of gold. I think that is a fairly good way to gain exposure in something like a retirement account, and I do have that. Uh, GLDM is one that I use. And there also is a strange dynamic where there are times when the gold miners and companies that are associated with the gold industry perform differently than the price of gold. So often and logically, what you would think through common sense would be that if the price of gold goes up, then companies that deal in gold and mine gold would also go up. But there are plenty of times when the opposite is actually true. There have been many times recently when stocks in general are down and there can be a sell-off in the gold miners. Uh, my understanding is just because they are stocks of companies themselves. And sometimes when markets go down, everything goes down. And so even if gold might be up, the gold mining stocks might be down and vice versa. There are plenty of times when gold is actually down for the day, but some of the various miners or the miners as a whole are up. Now, another dynamic to consider is that if there is a big bull run on gold, there should be, theoretically at least, an even bigger run-up on a lot of these gold miners. And so that is a lot of potential that you could possibly tap into. Now, again, it's not guaranteed, just like anything in investing, none of it's guaranteed, but it is very likely, especially given that gold has just gotten out of a very long bear market where prices have been down for years and it's only been in this past year or so that it's really come up out of that and gold relative to its normal performance is way up and that has been a big jump but the gold miners and a lot of the gold stocks 
have not seen as high of a jump as gold itself has. Now, add to this the fact that during the bear market, a lot of gold companies got washed out, a lot of them got bought up, and the ones that are still in existence and still doing well, they had to make a lot of changes in their businesses. They had to get very efficient, they had to cut costs, they had to Uh, miss out on some of the more extravagant purchases and exploration activities that they were doing. And so a lot of them are extremely financially sound, and their valuations are still very low. And so that could be a very good indicator of the potential that these stocks have, because the companies themselves are in such a sound position already And usually you get a higher rise out of those companies that are in the industry than you do out of the gold price itself. The gold price itself, the price of gold, is generally fairly stable, whereas a lot of times in bull markets or bear markets, the miners and other associated companies go up or down to a much greater degree than the price of gold itself. For some specific companies that I personally like a lot, I like uh, JM Bullion. If you are going to buy gold yourself, they'll ship it to you. They have good prices and it's pretty easy to work with. So if you just want to buy some gold, JM Bullion is one that I personally use. Uh, for actual companies, I do like Newmont Mining. NEM is the ticker symbol. Um, I think that's a pretty solid company. It's one of the biggest companies. They did merge recently with one of their biggest competitors, and they have been able to gain a lot of efficiency there and use that scale to increase their margins and such. Their ratios, their PE ratio and valuations are fairly low, even though they're one of the most established and biggest miners in the market. So that's my pick for kind of one of the big guys. Uh, My personal favorite for one of the smaller companies is Sandstorm Gold. It's S-A-N-D for the ticker symbol. And they are a gold royalty company where they get streams from various gold projects. So what they'll do is they will finance a project and in exchange, they will receive the gold from that project when it actually starts getting the gold out and selling the gold, there will be a contract deal between Sandstorm and that mining company to sell them a certain amount of gold for a certain period of time at a certain price. And they were buying up a lot of these contracts and giving out money and making a lot of these financing deals and royalty deals in the middle of the bear market where they were able to gain exposure to much bigger companies than they had in the past because basically everybody was hurting financially. A lot of the banks weren't as interested in giving out loans for the industry since it was so beaten down. And so I heard an interview with the owner, the CEO of Sandstorm Gold, I guess two or three years ago, and kind of the tail end of the bear market. And this was something that he was talking a lot about, that they have put a lot of money and effort into getting some really good long-term deals while everything is low. And he had the view that turned out to be pretty correct, that uh, the bear market was going to turn around sometime in the relatively near future. And when it did, they would have some extremely good contracts where they would get some really good prices and make some really good margins as the price of gold started to come back up. And they have been able to do so. So that's personally one I like. Another one, ticker 
EXK is one that does gold and silver as well. So that would be my pick there. And I also recently bought some stock in a few, kind of a handful of small mining companies, I think five-ish different ones that I have not invested in previously, and I have only recently done my due diligence on them, and I don't know their ticker symbols right off the top of my head, so I won't get into those. But that's at least my personal view and how I have personally chosen to invest in gold and gain exposure to gold in my own portfolio. Now, the next asset class would be real estate. In general, the housing market typically goes up and the value of real estate goes up long term. But I also feel like this has a bit of the same problem that stocks have, where people assume that equities will always go up. And even if there is a bit of a downturn, it'll turn back around as long as you buy and hold, you're going to be set in the long term. That is not guaranteed. Things could crash and never come back, or they could crash and take 20 years to come back. Look at the Great Depression or something like that. And so that is not a guarantee in my opinion. Now, I like real estate because it is an actual asset. You actually own something. You own that land. Now, I've talked many times before about how you actually don't truly own the land. You can't do whatever you want with it or sell it without somebody's permission or keep it without still paying for it, pay the government their taxes and their share that they demand, that kind of stuff. But even so, to the degree that you do own it, you actually have something tangible, and so that's good. Personally, if I was going to invest in real estate, and I have almost done so multiple times, I probably will at some point. Although right now, again, I feel similar to the stock market bubble that real estate, at least definitely in my local area, is in a bubble. Uh, debt's super cheap. So people are buying up homes like crazy and have been for the past few years. And so with that, that's not really the time that I personally would want to get in. I would want to wait until there's a bit of a downturn. You do have the issue where foreclosures are very high and renters not paying their rent is extremely high since the coronavirus hit and people are laid off and that kind of stuff. And the impact of that has not really hit because at least, uh, for example, in the U.S., the CDC, for some reason, they have their claim, at least, to have jurisdiction here. But the CDC has said that landlords are not allowed to kick out their renters. So even if the renters aren't paying their rent, the landlords can't kick them out and remove them. And so there are no evictions, even though there is no money coming in. They're not paying their rent. And so that's been an issue. There are also policy issues with foreclosures, where there are a lot of potential foreclosures that haven't gone through. And there are a lot of policies that are giving homeowners basically some extra time and extra protections. But when this stuff does come around and actually hits, that might be a bit of an issue. So that's one of the other reasons why I am a little hesitant at this point in time. Some of the other issues that I personally have with real estate is that typically you're going to finance that with debt. And so you are increasing your debt. And I am not a fan of debt at all. So getting into debt for something that you don't actually need is not something I am very big on in general. But if you were to do it, and if I were to do it, my ideal at least would be to buy a rental property, probably a small one, one that I could actually afford and either do a very short-term loan on it or ideally take money out of other investments and 
pay for something cash, maybe a small duplex or something like that. Ideally, do rental, ideally multifamily, and pay as much of it as possible off. And if you cannot pay it all off, then make sure it gets paid off as quickly as possible. And then keep something like that, a rental property. We have multiple people under one roof. And so your maintenance costs are lower because you just have that one property. Your taxes and things like that are lower. You have some good income coming in. Even if there's a downturn in the market, you typically are fairly stable as far as a landlord because people, if there's a downturn, they're not able to buy or build a house. And there are more people that basically are forced to rent. And so even if some of the renters are having to downgrade or can't afford their rent, there are a lot of other people that need to rent under those conditions. Now, again, you've got these headwinds, like I mentioned earlier, regarding policy, and you have things like zoning that can come into play. So there are some issues there. But that's at least my personal view. Now, the next place to invest that I could think of is entrepreneurship, basically starting a business, investing in some sort of side hustle or increasing your production that you already have. If you have something that you do on the side, then what you can do is invest some more money into that in such a way that it will make you more productive and help you to earn more money in the future so that you will then not only pay off that investment, but then you will start making gains on that investment and that is where you get your return. But your added benefit is you're doing this for yourself and you're doing this in a way that benefits you directly. So that is another good option. For example, if you have some blueberry bushes and you go to the market every summer when blueberries are in season and you sell bags of blueberries, then you make, you know, 100 bucks a weekend or something small like that. Well, maybe you can invest in doubling the size of your blueberry patch. And then you'll be able to sell more. Now, this might take a few years to actually start paying for itself. But once it does, not only do you recoup your investment, but you're making some massive profits on that investment you made into yourself. And so that's really cool. If you're into making things and selling them online, on eBay, on Etsy, at the market, you know something like this, then maybe you invest into something that allows you to make those things better, some sort of machine or or tools or equipment of some kind that allows you to increase your production and do it more efficiently. And so you're investing in yourself, but in a way that you're investing in your own business so that you can make more money and produce more. That is, in my book, a very good investment. And on a similar line, I would say personal investments are very good, where you pay off your debts, for example. If you have a mortgage on your house or on your car or something, let's say you're paying 4% interest, I think is probably roughly the going rate for a house right now. And if you're paying 4% on your house, then if you did not have that payment on your house, you are automatically essentially making a 4% return on your money. Basically, you are canceling out the 4% loss, but you know roughly the same thing. And so although you will often make more than a 4% return in the markets, especially at this point in time, and really at any time, you can't guarantee that. Whereas you can guarantee 4%, which is twice what you have to make up for inflation, you can guarantee that by just paying off your debt. And that also benefits you in the sense that you don't have 
have as much debt. So there are many benefits to that. So paying off debt is a good way. Uh, growing your own food is a good way to invest in yourself personally. You can buy seeds, uh, build some garden beds, you know, plant some berry bushes, fruit trees, uh, get some chickens, whatever the case may be. But ways of producing your own food is a very good example. Uh, raising animals just in general, whether it be rabbits or turkeys or chickens or whatever, have a pig. You know, this used to be very common, but in today's world, that's not a very common thing that people do. But it is a good way to spend some money in such a way that you make a good return in the end. For example, we recently uh, raised two pigs. And for what we paid for the pigs and paid for the feed and then paid to process the pigs, we didn't process them ourselves or anything like that. With all that included, we ended up only paying roughly a few dollars a pound on the meat that we got. And for organic pasture-raised pork, some of the most nutritious pork that we could probably get our hands on, that's a pretty good price. It's actually cheaper than probably the cheapest stuff you can buy at Walmart. So oftentimes when you go this route and invest in raising your own meat and your own food, you can make a lot of money in the sense that you are getting a good return on your investment. And since we're talking about investing, that's a good call. You've got things like generating your own electricity. Let's say you buy some solar panels. We did this when we built our house. And the way the math worked out, at least the original estimate, was it was only going to take about seven years for the panels to pay for themselves entirely. And they had, I think, a 30-year warranty or 25 years, something like that. And so we would end up with over 20 years of basically free power that we would be generating ourselves. Now, the way it turns out, it's going to take a little over 10 years for them to actually pay for themselves based on the true production of what they're giving us. But even so, we're still going to have more than 10 years of free power, probably about 15 years of power guaranteed under warranty that we would not pay for. Basically, it had already paid for itself after a little over 10 years and then everything beyond that until the warranty runs up. And if they're still going after the warranty, you know, it could be who knows how long. And so that becomes a very good investment. We might be making $70 a month extra on an investment that we have already paid for. And so that's a pretty good deal. That's kind of a passive income without actually being income. And it worked out pretty well. You've also got the ability to harvest your own water. The easiest way, I would say, would be to collect your rainwater off your gutters on your house and then use that to water things, water your gardens, water your yard, uh, use water outside, wash your car, whatever you want to do. That's a free source of water, a very small investment. You can usually get giant containers, super cheap, and you can just collect it and use it. And it's pretty simple, pretty small investment. And even though water is fairly cheap in most jurisdictions, it can still add up if you're doing something like watering all your gardens for you know a month every other day because you have a really bad dry spell in your area or something like this. So that's another thing to consider. The, the final thing that I'll say is one that I have been really focused on lately. It was something I should have done and talked about doing about a year ago, didn't do, then coronavirus hit and definitely uh, felt that hole. And that would be to buy in bulk and uh, go a little prepper, not necessarily the full prepping lifestyle or anything like that, but to have things 
in stock and to have what we need. So for example, I've bought like a very large like gallon container of Castile soap, highly concentrated, a big thing of like 99% isopropyl alcohol. Uh, some of these like base things that you can make a lot of different things out of and are good for many purposes, but also things like 25 pound bags of various types of beans and lentils and oats and things like this. They're fairly easy to store. They don't really go bad very easily. And we at least eat them a lot and we eat them even more than we used to now. And it's good to have on hand. It's not quite as reliable in one way, but freezing things is also very helpful. So to have extra meat, for example, we had all that pork processed and I've got an entire chest freezer full of pork. And we also went in on a cow. We ended up only getting like an eighth of a cow or some you know, very small percentage, but that ended up being a decent bit of meat as well. And other things like that, some of our garden harvest, we freeze. And so we have freezers full of food. And so yes, technically the power could go out and we'd be kind of screwed. We'd have to do something about that. So it's not quite as bulletproof, but it's still another way of storing and prepping and being ready for, I would say, the more likely scenario is just shortages or inflation in food prices, things like this. We personally, me and my family, don't really want to be subject to the whims of what's going to happen and what may or may not happen. You never know. We want to make sure that we have what we need and we are all set. But not only that, we are saving a lot of money because when you buy black beans in a 25-pound bag, it's a lot cheaper than buying it by the pound. Even though beans are super cheap to buy in the store relatively, like rice and other things like that, it's still much cheaper to buy it in bulk. In general, most everything is cheaper to buy in bulk. And so things that will store, which there's a lot of stuff that will store very well, it can be very beneficial to buy in bulk, keep it on hand, and save some money, as well as be a little more self-reliant in case for whatever reason, you weren't able to get access to more stuff, you have it already in stock. A good source that I have recently started using is Azure Standard. That's A-Z-U-R-E Standard. And what they do is they offer a lot of different things that you can buy in bulk. There'll be a delivery that will be in your rough area, so long as you have access in your area to this. And a big truck will come up. It will deliver a bunch of pallets. And then everybody that had placed an order basically helps to unload the pallets and put everything in piles where you'll have your name on the floor and everybody's name will be in a big row or circle or however the area is laid out. And so everybody takes things off the pallet, they put it with the name that's on the box or the bag. And so you end up with everybody's stuff in their own separate piles by their own name and everybody's helped to unload themselves. So that saves money on the delivery cost and on the labor of unloading and all these kinds of things. So that's really nice. And everybody works together to get it out. Then you just take your stuff to your car and you go home and you ended up getting lots of really cool stuff. They have a lot of organic bulk 
things, which is something that I personally really like and have gotten a lot of. So that's a good resource that I have really enjoyed personally. The final asset class to get into is cryptocurrencies and digital assets of this nature. I am not going to cover that right now because I am almost at an hour of recording and that's without the intro and outro. So yes, I am not going to do that this time. I will do that next time. I will probably just do a whole episode on that. That should be pretty easy to do. And I will give kind of my view on crypto markets and investing in cryptocurrencies and some current things that are going on. Talk about all that kind of stuff as well as the specific projects that I do like and I do own some of their tokens and I can get into that kind of stuff. So that's what will come next week. I hope you enjoyed this. If you have any questions or comments or if there was something that I mentioned that you didn't catch or need to know more about, then feel free to email me, send me a message, whatever. I'll put some of this stuff in the show notes. Uh, I will try to do the ticker symbols so long as I remember all the ones that I mentioned and have that information there. As I mentioned before, I did do a post on the Patreon page that I've updated three or four times over the past, I don't know, two and a half years, however long I've been doing this podcast. And it, I started off with my entire investment portfolio. Now, I didn't give you the amounts and which accounts which things are in, but I basically broke it down to a percentage and said that X percent I had in equities and X percent in startups and X percent in cryptocurrencies and whatever, and then listed out what specific stocks and what percentage of my portfolio each individual asset had. And again, I updated that every few months or six months or so. And so I was able to reflect the changes I was making as I was, for example, selling off equities, getting more into gold, and even more recently, uh, basically getting completely out of equities and completely in gold and crypto and alternative investments. And so again, I haven't updated that in the past six months. Not much has changed, but I would say I do have less in cash and more in gold and more in crypto. So I had a decent chunk in cash sitting on the sidelines and I have since put that in. For example, when crypto markets tanked uh, kind of at the beginning of the coronavirus deal, maybe April, May, somewhere around there, I did invest a decent bit um, in that downturn, which has worked out pretty well. And also have put more in gold and that is doing fairly well as well. So uh, that's probably the main change. But overall, things are roughly, I think, what that post has. And I will try to update that as well in the near future. So if you're interested, you can go to the Patreon page. I don't know if everyone has access. It might just be for patrons, but maybe that's motivation to go ahead and sign up and support the show. So if that's something that you're interested in doing, please do. Those that already are, thank you very much for doing so. I would like to say thank you to everyone for listening to this show, for all of your support of all kinds. This episode is now concluded. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.